Thank you so very much, Chapel Band, for those tremendous songs of praise and worship to the Lord. It's a privilege to be here this morning to share the Word of God with you. Uh, as a board member, I want you to know that those of us who serve on the board are honored to do so and that every decision we make, we make with you, the students, in mind. You are why we serve and we are passionate about seeing you develop spiritually, intellectually, socially, academically, etc. I also want to take this opportunity to thank the staff and faculty members who are present this morning. Thank you for your labors, your efforts, and your sacrifices to be a part of what the Lord is doing here in this place. When Pastor Harry called me a couple weeks ago and asked me to speak at chapel this morning, he asked me to speak on something very practical to, commit to, to continue promoting your chapel theme of Christ-likeness and discipleship toward Christ-likeness. We know that you get a lot of information as a student, and we know how important that is, but we also know that it is crucial for all of us to think about what Christianity looks like in blue jeans. What does it look like in everyday living? That's why I've chosen to speak on the passage that we are going to consider this morning. But I want to give you a warning. If you really listen, some of this is going to hurt. The reason I know that is because every time I go through this passage, it carves me up. I'm referring specifically to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so please turn with me in your Bible to that great text of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you probably know, this is the famous love chapter of the Bible. Since we are going to be talking about love this morning, think about how many songs and how many poems there are that are written about love. It probably would not be an overstatement to say that most songs are about love, one way or the other. They are about looking for love, feeling in love, or the loss of love. Our world realizes, at least to some extent, the importance of love and feels the need for love, but it is so elusive and so enigmatic. People believe that love is out there somewhere, so they are always chasing it in another relationship or in another song or in another setting. But one of the reasons why so few people find love is because the reality is that there are very few genuinely loving people in this world. To be a loving person means in part to be a person who is not self-centered, not self-focused, or not selfish. And frankly, there are very few people like that in the world. Even those who are characterized by a lack of self-focus are quick to admit that they are not that way all the time. Selfishness is something we all face and we all fight. So it is no wonder that few people in our world ever find love. Love is found in knowing God because God is love. Love is found in the family of God because God's people are taught by God himself to love one another. Love is found 
by being the right person, not by finding the right person. Love is described for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Please follow along as I read this brief chapter for us. I'll be reading this morning out of the New King James Version. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Needless to say, this is a monumental chapter of Scripture. It is one of the most popular portions in all of the Word of God. It is not uncommon to see a plaque of it in card stores or in flower stores. However, many people who enjoy the poetic sounds of these verses do not realize why they were written. These words were not written in a vacuum. They were written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in response to the situation that was taking place in Corinth. You see, the members of the Corinthian church were really into spiritual gifts. From what we read in chapters 12, 13, and 14, they were really into them for some very wrong reasons. They wanted to use spiritual gifts to get attention. They wanted to use spiritual gifts to draw attention to themselves. Therefore, they wanted the gift that was the most spectacular, the most dramatic, and the most flamboyant. That was the gift of tongues or languages. To be able to speak in a language you've never studied or never known is indeed quite a feat. So the Corinthians wanted that gift. There is no question about the fact that they wanted that gift because in every one of these three chapters on spiritual gifts, Paul focuses on the gift of tongues or languages to put it in its proper place and proper perspective. For example, in chapter 12, when Paul twice lists the various gifts, he mentions the gift of tongues right at the end of the list along with the gift of interpretation. Then here in chapter 13, when Paul begins to demonstrate the emptiness of gifts without love, the first example he gives is speaking in tongues or languages. 
Then in chapter 14, Paul contrasts the value of the gift of tongues or languages with the gift of prophecy or proclamation. So there is no doubt that the Corinthians had an overestimation of that gift and wanted to possess the gift of tongues or languages. After all, that was the, that was the flashy gift. That was the showy gift, and that's why they wanted it. Their hearts weren't being motivated or spurred on by love for Christ or love for the body of Christ. Their hearts were focused on self. That's what prompted Paul to write this chapter on love. Love is the opposite of a focus on self, as we'll see in the consideration of verses 4 and 5 this morning. These verses are not so much a definition of love as they are a display of love. It's impossible to define love in a cold, sterile definition in one sentence. And there's a sense in which to try to do so cheapens the essence and quality of love. The best way then to define love is to describe what it looks like when it's fleshed out in a practical way. And that's what we have in verses 4 through 7. The theme of your chapels has been Christ-likeness and practical discipleship toward Christ-likeness and living out Christ-likeness. Well, if you want to know what Christ-likeness looks like practically, this is it. Notice the first phrase in verse 4, love suffers long. The New American Standard Bible, ESV, and NIV translate this phrase, love is patient. The word that is used here is makrothumia, which is a combination of two Greek words, makros and thumos. Makros means long and thumos means anger. So when you put these two words together and form makrothumia, it means a long time before getting angry. Thus, the word patient or the phrase suffers long. Now, when we talk about patience, there are really two aspects to it. On the one hand, we can talk about patience in relation to circumstances. For example, as a student, you understand that it takes patience to put together a term paper. It takes patience to do a course project. It takes patience to earn a degree. That's, that's one aspect of patience. Another aspect of patience is patience in relation to people. That's the emphasis of this word that Paul uses here. It is not emphasizing patience in relation to circumstances, such as you are patient when you're going somewhere and you get a flat tire and you have to stop and change the tire and you don't lose your temper, you don't kick the tire because you're patient. Well, that's one aspect of patience. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about patience in relation to people. It is describing the practical outworking of love. If you want to know what love is and what it looks like, it is patient with other people. Love suffers long. When someone is loving, it takes him or her a long time before getting angry with others. And it takes a lot, an awful lot, for him or her to get angry with others. That's what love is. That's how it looks in practical, everyday life. 
And students, we need to emphasize very strongly that this is the sign of a man or woman who is truly Christ-like. Instead, in the body of Christ, we tend to emphasize the wrong things. So many Christians believe that the evidence of Christ-likeness is if a person has a lot of theological or Bible knowledge. Other Christians believe that the evidence of Christ-likeness is if he or she is able to speak in tongues or languages. Still others would say that the evidence of a, of a person that is Christ-like is if he or she is very forward and bold and outspoken about his or her faith. But how about this? One of the most concrete pieces of evidence that a person is Christ-like is if he or she is patient with other people. A Christ-like person suffers long. It takes a long time and a lot for a Christ-like person to become upset with others. Patience is love fleshed out in a practical way, and love is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. This description of love here in verses 4 through 7 is, as I said earlier, Christianity in blue jeans. It is very practical. It is down to earth. Oh, how easy it is to say that the mark of a strong Christian is knowledge or speaking in languages or being bold. But it's much more difficult to say that the mark of a strong Christian is someone who loves in such a way so as to be patient or long-suffering with others. That same thing could be said for the next descriptive word in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Did you hear that? Love is kind. Those of us who are committed to standing for the truth and committed to not compromising the truth need to hear this. For some reason, we tend to think that the only way you can stand for the truth is by being abrasive or being harsh. Where is that in the Bible? We should stand for the truth, and we should make sure that we don't compromise the truth, but we can do that without having a bunch of rough edges. Tragically, some of the most unkind Christians you will ever meet are those who are committed to an uncompromising stand for the truth. Students, it doesn't have to be that way. Love is kind. And love is the evidence that we are walking in the Spirit and allowing Him to produce His fruit in our lives and to produce Christ-likeness in us. Don't deceive yourself and think that you are a strong Christ-like Christian because you stand for the truth if you are an unkind person. A while back, I ran across an article titled, Why Are Reformed Christians So Mean? It was written by a man who is also reformed in his theology. So in this article, he's not throwing stones at you know, the other guys or the other camp. When he uses the word reformed in his article, he's not referring to a denomination. He was referring to those who hold to many of the fundamental doctrines of the reformers, so he would be talking to me and many of you. 
Here is a part of that article, and it's, it's somewhat of an extended quote, but I think if you will stay focused, you will really appreciate what he says. Here, here's the quote. He says, I have noticed far more than I would care to keep record of that many Reformed Christians are downright mean. I'm not alone in this observation. There is even a common appellation for such people. Sometimes they are called TRs for totally Reformed or thoroughly Reformed by those within the confessional circle. A friend of mine has recently suggested to me that the more descriptive term would be VRs for viciously Reformed. I have recently asked myself why this is so. I have a few suggestions. First, Reformed Christians take theology very seriously. Most are readers who like ideas in verbal or written debates. They often love to debate on the internet by means of discussion groups. Reformed Christians are generally inclined to discuss theology. Quite often they have less interest in practical, simple acts of kindness and charity. What engages many Reformed Christians at their deepest level of passion is the intellectual discussion of theology. Their mindset tends to be quite analytical, and thus they like to pose questions that require logical answers, and then they use proof texts to back them up. As a result, Reformed Christians are regularly prone to conclude that anyone who disagrees with them is, well, how else can I say it, just plain wrong. In this approach, the one who disagrees is either dumb unwilling to learn the truth, or even a heretic. I have heard all three expressions used regularly in Reformed circles. Second, Reformed Christians often thrive on contrariness. <coughs> because they are a minority in the larger Christian community, they tend to carry a rather large chip on their shoulders. Dare to disagree with a treasured part of the confessional tradition or with their favorite author, and you will suffer the wrath of a fellow Christian like you have rarely experienced. Reformed Christians, like so many others, are of two sorts. One is the person who is born into a Reformed family or church. These folks are generally less aggressive and defensive, having embraced certain Reformed doctrines from their earliest years. The other sort of person embraces particular doctrines, usually the so-called five points of Calvinism, and carries a deep desire to convert every other Christian they know to Calvinism. The most strident people among the Reformed are usually these converts who once believed what they now so strongly reject. How soon we forget that once we all saw some things quite differently. How soon Reformed people tend to forget that truth is revealed by God to babes, not to giants. Perhaps the most important practical aspect of good Reformed theology for everyday living is this. It causes the one who rightly believes it to confess that everything is of grace. Absolutely everything. There is no room for pride in the theology Reformed folks confess, but far too many of us who love these truths have been arrogant. Third, he says, Reformed Christians are quite often drawn to other Reformed Christians, and to conferences that major on these unique doctrines that the Reformed Christians love. The same can be said about many other Christian groups, I am sure. Example, charismatics, prophecy advocates, etc. But what makes this so deadly among Reformed Christians 
is that the knowledge of what one believes is exalted above the practice of simple kindness and the joy that comes in knowing one's sins are forgiven. An ideal text for many Reformed Christians to meditate on day and night is found in the Apostle Paul's statement that knowledge puffs up. Reformed Christians are not always the smartest people, but they are generally the people most certain that they grasp knowledge in a distinct way that makes them the most biblically faithful Christians. This theology, as many Reformed believers will argue, is the superior way to think and to live. Then he closes with this paragraph. I have noticed over many years that Reformed Christians often take themselves way too seriously. They confuse taking God's word seriously and God's truth seriously with taking themselves far too seriously. Whatever the truth Reformed believers embrace, they are sure that they and they alone embrace the truth. When this approach is taken, my view will soon be equated with orthodoxy, and thus the way I read everything in the Bible, the world, and the church is either true or false. There is often little recognition by such Reformed thinking that I see through a glass darkly at the present. And when one knows, that's in quotes, when, when one knows that they have the truth, and thus whatever they think is exactly what God thinks, then it is not long until their views are seen to be the same thing as God's truth. The problem here is not with truth, but rather with a failure to grasp the implications of the, the noetic effects of sin. Truth is not philosophical certainty, but a living relationship with the one who is the truth, the living word, end quote. That is really good. And there are many in our camp who need to hear those words because God says love is kind. The next phrase in verse 4 says, love does not envy or is not jealous. That is, love doesn't desire what someone else has. Love is not jealous of what someone else has. Love doesn't begrudge someone else for what he or she has. Love doesn't do that. Love is not focused on self, but on others. Since that is the case, love is not going to begrudge someone for what he or she has, and love is not going to be jealous of someone for what he or she has. If we truly love, then we're going to be glad for the other person, rejoice with him. This characteristic of love was very important for the Corinthians to hear because as I said earlier, many of them wanted the gift of tongues or languages. And those who didn't have that gift were envious or jealous of those who did. That was proof positive that they were devoid of love. And Paul knew that. That's why he wrote this chapter. Isn't it amazing to think that even as Christians, we can allow ourselves to stoop to the point of being envious of other people's spiritual gifts? Maybe that's not the specific issue with you. Maybe it's something else that you're envious, envious of in another person's life. Maybe you are envious because other students have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe you are envious of the talents that other students around you have. 
Maybe you're envious of the grades other students receive. Maybe you are envious of the finances other students have. It could be any number of things. If that's the case, it's an indication of your lack of love. Now the solution, the solution here is not to attack envy. I mean, if you're sitting here this morning you're saying, wow, this is really hitting me between the eyes. I, I, I am very envious and that shows I don't, I don't have love. I need to attack envy. No, the solution is to ask the Lord to fill your heart with love. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's suppose you're driving down the road and you notice the oil light is flashing on the dash of your vehicle. Here's how you can fix the problem. Take out the little hammer that is tucked under your seat and smash the oil light on the dash. Is that going to fix your problem? Obviously not. No, you, you need to fill the crankcase with oil and then the oil light will go, out, will go off. Well, the same thing is true with envy. If you see envy in your heart, you're not going to conquer envy or jealousy by attacking it. The solution is to ask the Lord to fill your heart with love because love does not envy. The next phrase in verse 4 says, love does not parade itself. The New American Standard Bible says love does not brag, and the NIV and the ESV say it does not boast. All three of those descriptive phrases are saying the same thing. They're saying love is not focused on self and does not concentrate on self and therefore would not go around promoting self. Bragging and boasting are the external manifestations of the next attribute that love is not. The end of verse 4 says love is not puffed up. The New American Standard Bible and the ESV use the word arrogant, and the NIV uses the word proud. If someone were to ask you to name the trait that is the opposite of love, just quick, just right off the, you know, right off the top of your head, if someone says, what is the opposite of love, my guess is that most of us would say hate. Now, that's not wrong, because... Hate is the opposite of love. But here's a really fascinating consideration. Another correct answer would be this. What is the opposite of love? Arrogance. Love is not arrogant or proud or puffed up. In our culture, we have a, a phrase that describes someone who is proud or arrogant. We'll sometimes say, that person is stuck on himself. That's really an accurate description. Because when someone is proud or arrogant, then he is stuck on himself. He's focused on himself. Love, however, is not focused on self. Love is focused on others. Students, if you want to know one of the reasons why so many marriages fail in our society, and sadly even in the church, it is because there are very few people who really love their spouses. Marriages fail because of a lack of love. It sounds simplistic to say that, and it sounds like a cliche, but it's the truth. So many people go into marriage for what they can get out of it. 
They want to have their needs met, their wants met, their desires met, their fantasies met, their expectations met. And even when they stand at the altar or wherever they stand to get married, and I know this because I've done hundreds of weddings through the years, when they stand there and commit themselves to love this other person, they often don't grasp what they are really saying. When they say, I love you, what they are really saying is, I love me, and I want you because I think you can make me happy. I love me, and I want you because I think you can meet all my expectations. And it's a recipe for disaster. Hear what the Word of God is saying. Love is not arrogant or proud because love is not focused on self. A proud person is focused on himself. A loving person is not. That leads to the next phrase, which is the first phrase in verse 5. It says, love does not behave rudely. What is rudeness? Rudeness is a lack of consideration for another person or for other people with the result that you are discourteous. Love is not rude because it does not fail to consider the other person. Love doesn't fail to consider other people. Now this is not referring to the accidental offending of someone, which is something we've all done and sadly will probably do, do again. We can offend someone accidentally by saying something, doing something, not saying something, not doing something. We can offend someone accidentally even if we're trying to be considerate of that person. So that's not what this is referring to when it says love does not behave rudely. This is talking about a complete disregard for the other person and his or her feelings. What would cause us to be that way? Why would we have a complete disregard for the other person and his or her feelings? What would be behind being rude? It would be a focus on ourselves instead of on others. That's the opposite of love. As the next phrase says here in verse 5, love does not seek its own, or love does not insist on its own way, whatever translation you have. Boy, does that hit us right between the eyes. How often in life do you want your own way? For me, this happens about all the time. You know what that tells me? It tells me that I'm not as Christ-like as I want to be, and I need to keep growing in love. Love does not demand its own way, and love does not seek to get its own way. This doesn't mean, by the way, that it's wrong when things go your way in life. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong to enjoy the things in life you enjoy. There's no reason to feel guilty about that. It's not wrong to have desires. It's not wrong to have preferences. But when you and I demand our own way, or if we manipulate circumstances to get our own way, or if we get upset when we don't get our own way, we are not acting in love. We're not being loving. The next phrase in verse 5 says, love is not provoked. The New American Standard Bible words it the same way, and 
The NIV says love is not easily angered. But maybe the best way to render this Greek verb would be to translate it like the ESV does. Love is not irritable. Ouch. That hurts, doesn't it? Are you ever irritable around your family, your friends, your roommates, your classmates, your teammates? Are you ever cranky, contentious, argumentative, touchy? Don't worry, I won't ask for a show of hands. If you came here this morning, assuming you are a spiritual giant, then you have been cut down by this passage along with all of us. This is where, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is, this is where we find out where our hearts are really at. This is where we find out just how genuine our spiritual reality, our spiritual, how genuinely spiritual we really are. Love is not irritable. And then the last phrase in verse 5 says, in my translation, love thinks no evil. The NIV probably says it best when it says it keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, if, if you really love someone as you are supposed to love that person, you don't keep a record. You, you don't throw up the past. You know, when some people get in a disagreement, and of course as a pastor, I do a lot of counseling, and I'm guessing that 90% of all the counseling we do as pastors is related to marriage counseling. And so you find out that when some people get in a disagreement, they get hysterical, which is not a healthy way to be. It's hard to make progress if one or the other person is just hysterical, irrational. Some get hysterical, but are you, are you ready for this? Some get historical because they just throw up the past. I remember when you said this to me. I remember you doing that or when you didn't do this. That is just as unhealthy. Do you remember all the times someone has hurt you? Do you remember all the times someone has disappointed you? It could be a friend, family member, fellow classmate. Do you remember all the times someone has upset you or offended you or let you down? Do you keep that record? It's just right there. It comes to the surface fairly quickly in your mind. That's not love. Love doesn't keep a record. So this, I would submit to you that this is what Christ-likeness looks like in everyday living. Right here, just verses 4 and 5. If we want to be challenged to be Christ-like, really be disciples of Christ, all we have to do is try to master verses 4 and 5. It's a lifetime challenge. Let's bow together as we pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word, no wonder the writer of Hebrews says it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing deep to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And if we are at all listening, if we are at all 
objective, if we are at all receptive, then a passage like this does cut us to the quick. It, it cuts right to the core of our being. Because even as your people, we, we, we can be so self-focused, so self-centered. So I pray that you would enable us by your Spirit to take seriously these descriptions of love and what, according to your word, what it means to be Christ-like. If that is our desire and if that is our goal, And if that is our passion, then surely we must take into account these important verses. So use the truth of your word to challenge us, to exhort us, to encourage us, to equip us to be more Christ-like because we pray in his matchless name.